Well, it's a pleasure to be here this morning with you all and be able to get back into the book of Titus. If you haven't noticed in your notes, that's where we're going to be. I started it earlier in this year and haven't got a chance to get really back into it until just recently, and we finished the the beginning of Titus, the, the, the um, salutation of Titus earlier a few weeks ago. But if you open up your bulletin, you're going to notice in there there's going to be some notes that allows you to follow along with the outline and to take your own notes. You'll notice that the title is the church's colonization mandate, the church's colonization mandate. And you might ask, why did I title it that way? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, well, I wanted to kind of turn to, to frame things in a particular way. And I want everyone to understand, especially if you're a Christian, that every single one of us is called to the Great Commission. We're called to make disciples of all nations, to go out and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And when that happens, if that happens faithfully, if you're doing that in your life faithfully, if you're proclaiming Christ to others, well, then God's going to bring his people out of the woodworks. People are going to get saved. And when people get saved, then there's people start to come together in a particular locale and particular places, and they gather together. Why? Well, because Christ has called us to gather together. And we see this even in the New Testament. What did the apostles do? They went out and they proclaimed the gospel and people would get saved. And then they would need someone to teach them, to mature them in the faith so that their lives would look like the message that they're proclaiming. The apostles were instructed by Christ to establish churches in a particular way, to do that by establishing church leaders. Because the churches and the individuals in those churches are meant to be a beacon of light and salt to the people around them. We're meant to essentially colonize within the midst of wicked cultures, and within that small colony, that little church, then impact the culture around, uh, not with any sort of protests or, or any sort of um, affirmative action or any, any of those things that people in politics do, but rather we proclaim truth that changes hearts and minds by the power of the Spirit. And today, some people, especially in academia, uh, you would even might note that people you've talked to or magazines you've read, articles you've read, have made the word colony or colonize into a bad word. Really, that's only recently. It was never a bad word in the past. And sadly, though, a lot of words are being redefined. And so, we would do our best as Christians to work by the standard of God's truth and to reclaim words the way that they're meant to be used. So, today, if you haven't already, open up to Titus chapter 1 and in Titus 1, we're going to see that these verses lay out three essentials of the organization of Christ's church 
and to call you, each and every one of you, to Christian maturity by those that model it. And we'll see that as we read. And, you know, I would like to ask, not just to wake you up, but to show reverence for God's Word, to please stand with me as we read the Word of God. And you can sit back down afterwards. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. We'll only be covering the first two verses today. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. That is the reading of the Word of God. You can sit back down now. Now, once again, we see here three absolute essentials of the church's organization that call every Christian to Christian maturity, to to that model of Christian maturity, because God sets in place and He sets in leadership those who are holding to that standard. The outline you'll see is verse 5, the colonization mandate, the model colony, and then next week we'll cover verses 7 through 9, which is the men who colonize. And I want to point out some important observations as we begin to dive in here. These qualifications um, are not relevant to, someone who ha- uh, to someone's pre-salvation days. In other words, before someone was saved. That is not what's in view here. This is in view. What is in view is, instead, what a man looks like after salvation. And by extension, since it's Christian maturity, any Christian, if you're striving for the standard of Christian maturity, you're going to be looking at these and saying, how how am I doing since I've been saved? I also want to note the qualifications are also qualitative and not quantitative. Qualitative and not quantitative. And what I mean by that is, we're looking at the quality of someone's life, the the habits they produce, the the way that they regularly behave. And it doesn't mean that if they fail once or twice, that now suddenly they're permanently disqualified. If that was true, then we wouldn't have apostles, because then the apostles, we often see, sometimes, it's even recorded for us in Scripture, would, are, are also still sinners. And they'll still sin, and sometimes even in egregious ways. For instance, we just went through the book of First Peter. And what did we learn about Peter? Well, Peter denied his master and Lord three times. And even after that, if you're reading through Galatians, Paul had to call out Peter for standing with the Judaizers. In other words, he joined some heretics, not knowing what to do, 
And so he wasn't doing what we see here in verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. In other words, he wasn't holding fast to the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But it doesn't mean that he was disqualified as apostle. In that moment, he needed to be rebuked. Maybe he even needed to take a short vacation before he came back and started teaching. But at the very end of the day, he needed, he needed to be corrected, and he was teachable, and he was correctable, and he came back into the church and continued to teach the church. And that's why we have First Peter. That's why we have Second Peter. And I also want you to note one more thing before we jump in, and I'll make a note of this as well. In verse 7, it says the overseer must be beyond reproach. There it's starting with a, with a verb that means, and just quite literally rendered, it is necessary. In other words, these qualifications are not optional. They're absolutely essential for any man to hold leadership, and they're absolutely essential in light of Christian maturity. If you're going to call yourself a mature Christian, you need to hold to this standard. Now, another thing to note is that the spiritual, spiritual gifts are included. We see this in verse 9. Um, we even read it when we were going through 1 Timothy 3 earlier. Uh, uh, elder, overseer, is called to teach. He's called to have the giftings of being able to teach and exhort. However, notice that, that it's not at the forefront. Notice here it's listed last and in 1 Timothy 3, it was just kind of included among all of the other things, but what is absolutely forward and primary and necessary is not necessarily the giftings, although they must be there. It's the character. We're looking at character. What is this person like? What, what is their life like? And it's not just external character, although we, we, we can really only judge the fruits as individuals. It's also the internal character, the life of your mind, the maintenance of of your heart, your communion with Christ, your love for God that overflows in actions. Like I mentioned earlier, habits, those things that are visible fruits, those will manifest in particular ways that we see here in this text. So let's begin by looking at the colonization mandate. For this reason, I left you in Crete. And we've noted several things about Crete before, and I'll just remind you that Paul is writing this after his first imprisonment, and there's probably, there's probably already churches when he got there, because there were already Jews from Crete at Pentecost. However, it seems that these churches were left in disorder. They did not have as much teaching as the, from the apostles as they needed in order to have an orderly church. And so, there needed work to be done, and there probably were still individuals who got saved by Paul and Titus's ministry when they came there. So you have new believers jumping into these churches, believers that have been there for a while, and that doesn't necessarily mean they were all that mature, because the real issue here, when we see, when we look at Crete itself, that Crete being this large island in the Mediterranean, and having all of these tropical beaches and tropical weather, having beautiful mountain ranges, all meant that there was a lush environment. And there were, there were things like grapes that were easy to grow. And you know what comes from grapes. Wine. And so these were people who liked 
to get drunk. They liked to party. In fact, Crete was known for its olive oil, its wine, and its lumber. And if we're really going to get into the, d- the depth of depravity um, in Crete, as far as other, well, a prominent uh, way of, of, of working or, or workers that were supplied from Crete would have been mercenary soldiers, guys who are just in it for the money. As far as the people go in Crete, they were ethnically diverse. Uh, they, were, um, they were steeped in pagan and Greek and religious mythologies. We covered a little bit of that a while ago, but in those Greek mythologies, they're known for, or in their, in their, their pattern of living anyway, they were known for lying, and what they did was they blamed that pattern of living, those sins, on uh, these mythologies, on the gods that they worshipped. Oh, well, our gods are so bad, therefore we can act like this. Oh, we've been cursed by these gods over here, so can't do anything about it. It's a sad, deplorable place to be, blaming your sins on imaginary gods. They had these immoral lifestyles, drunkenness, partying, promiscuity, perversion. Well, no, not, not, not unlike a lot of places you would go today. You'd see um, places where people go for spring break, like Cancun or other famous beaches. Paul was expecting Titus to be able to order churches, to bring them to order here in even the midst of this depraved and corrupt culture. And he expected that this, this colonization mandate to work even in the midst of immorality and communities that practice that immorality surrounding them. If that's the case, what does it say for us? We live in a culture like that. We live in a culture that's getting worse and worse. But if Paul and Titus and those first Christians were able to stay true to the standard of of truth and to be light and salt in the midst of that depraved culture, we should be able to be light and salt in the midst of this depraved culture. And notice he says that he left things unfinished. Paul does. And we might ask why. Well, One reason for sure, if you're looking at 1 Timothy 5.22, this gives us a little insight. And 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not lay hands upon anyone hastily and thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. It takes time to identify individuals who might be qualified for such leadership. It takes time for men and women to mature and to sanctify and, and, and grow in the faith. And so this is why Paul had to leave some things unfinished. And no, notice Paul's reason stated here, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed. The word for set in order is comprised of two prepositions, upon and through, and it's attached to ortho, which means to make straight. It's from ortho, orthos, and that's where we get our word orthodontist, uh, a dentist specialist who straightens and aligns crooked teeth. In ancient times, the term was used of setting broken bones and straightening bent limbs. 
and it's a function of the medical specialty today that we call orthopedics. And so that gives you a much clearer picture of what Paul is commanding Titus here. God demands order. Just think of 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace or order. That's in the context of him calling the Corinthian church into order. They were getting all sorts of chaotic with the gifts that they were given by the Spirit, and they were using them wrongly. They were creating a chaotic environment, and Paul had to rebuke them for that. God blesses he who orders his way. That's Psalm 50, 20, 23. Psalm 50, 23. And just note, if we're thinking about the order of God, God, in creating the world, created all reality as we know it in a pristine, orderly sequence of six literal days, filling a nothingness void with a majestic universe and giving form and life to a formless and lifeless space. God brought order out of chaos, and He does that with the body of Christ as well. He takes someone who's disorderly in the world, living immoral, and makes them new creatures in Christ and grows them each day, each hour, each minute into an image of Christ. So we must ask, though, we have two verbs here. It says that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Is this two purposes or one purpose? I would present to you that this is actually one purpose. What we're getting here is a general description set in order, and then the specifics of that, of what Paul wants Titus to do, and he wants them to appoint elders in every city. And a point here is to assign someone with a position of authority. In classical Greek, it would often mean someone appointment to an office, like a government office. And also notice that you, the, the pronoun you is in here, and that you, and this is one of the difficulties in the English language when you're reading through the Greek New Testament, is you don't know whether it's you singular or y'all. But I can tell you right now, it's you singular. He's speaking to Titus. It's you singular. Titus, it was Titus's job alone, not the congregational vote or anything like that. It was Titus's job alone to help actually appoint these individuals into specific roles. That doesn't mean that the congregation had no the, the, the individuals that were in the churches had no say in how that, that functioned. I mean, if Titus hadn't been spending a lot of time in each and every one of these churches, he would need help identifying individuals. But it's important to know that it was Titus's authority alone that would actually set those individuals into the position. And notice the logic here. The logic is God trusts those individuals who are the most mature to be able to rightly discern whether someone is mature or not to be put into that position. And this, is, this can be tough for us to, to swallow in our democratic age, in the age where, well, I get to have a say and whatever leader comes into uh, being in the political realm. And I think it's great that we have a government like that, where we can each have a say, well, hopefully have a say, if the voting system still works, uh, in the next candidate that comes up. And so that's a good thing, and, but that's in the realm of government. That's not in the realm of the church. We need to always stay close to what Scripture says in the church 
And so we really need help from faithful, qualified, mature men to be able to place certain men into leadership. And notice here, he says, I want you to place elders, plural, in every city as I directed. He doesn't say place an elder at the top. Why would that be? There needs to be accountability. There already should be accountability from the body of Christ. Matthew 18, anybody can do that. You don't have to be a leader to do that. And you should be practicing Matthew 18 with everybody in your church, including your own leaders. But the leaders also need accountability from other leaders. And so the ideal leadership in a church is, and the the ideal structure is a plurality of elders. I would say at least two, if not more than that. And there's practicality to this, the way that God has designed it. It's one of the reasons we do this at Master's Bible Church. We have essentially six men on leadership right now. Three of them are elders. Two are hopefully going to become elders soon. Another on a longer track to that, and for a very specific reason, because he is still young and he's still learning. But every one of us on leadership try our best to meet the needs of every one of you. But it's hard to break down even a hundred people into individuals that we can, each, we can each try to keep up with. It's a lot of people to keep up with, a lot of lives to keep up with. And so we, we have, it really helps to kind of spread out that responsibility among leaders. And that's why we need a plurality of elders. And you also notice the, the title for elder. Uh, we also read in verse 7 the title overseer. These are used synonymously here. Elder, as title, stresses spiritual maturity and not necessarily spiritual age. This is important to know. When you think elder, we think it's got to be a guy with gray hair on his head. That's not how this works. John MacArthur says, simply being older, even older in the faith, does not qualify a man for leadership in the church. I'll say that again. Simply being older, even older in the faith, does not qualify a man for leadership in the church. Why? Because somebody could come in and not be applying the scriptures that they're learning. Happens in a lot of churches, a lot of churches that are dying. There's men getting up there, preaching, maybe even preaching sound doctrine, but they're not applying it to their lives, so their people are sitting there in the pews and going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, well, I see your life. I don't have to live this way. I'll agree with you. This looks like it's what scripture says, but if you don't apply it to your life, I don't have to apply it to mine, so I'm good, thanks. Now, they would never say that out loud, but that's what they're thinking, and that's why these churches die off, because the leaders don't practice what they preach. And notice for overseer, the, the term overseer, you could also render that bishop, once again, used synonymously. This title stresses the responsibility or function of the role. So elder is this more mature man in the faith, whether he's young or old uh, physically, And overseer stresses the responsibility, the fact that you're having to oversee God's people. You have to take care of of each and every one of them. You can't let one sheep go unattended for. And he says in every city, and we actually don't know how many cities were in Crete. 
I haven't quite found an, uh, someone, any historians that were trying to estimate at that time. They haven't done, and I think part of that is because they haven't done all that many archaeological digs there. I'm sure they'd find plenty more there. But I heard one preacher claim that there was like 140-something cities. I'm like, are you going by the cities they have there today, or are you going by the history? I don't know. We just really, we can't know how many cities were there in Paul's day, for sure. But we can say that even if it was more than a single-digit number, if it was even a two-digit number, think of how much work Titus had to do. He had a lot on his hands, especially if he can't just walk in there and say, well, uh, you look a little bit more mature, you look a more mature, let's make you leaders. He had to take time. He had to get to know these guys. He had to make sure that the people that were saying, hey, yeah, I think this guy's mature, were actually thinking biblically about, about that analysis and then being able to see for himself that these individuals really were living like the Word of God called them to live. Imagine this as we're thinking about Titus's responsibility. It's like, it's like building a house. You can build your foundation, and Paul helped him with that, but that house isn't finished until you at least get the walls and the roof up. I mean, you could even have the walls up, but the house is not functioning the way that it's supposed to. Right? You've got to have the roof on top in order to be protected from the elements. So, just as, as, as Calvin says, he says, when the foundation was laid, Paul departed and then became Titus's duty to raise the building above the ground so the structure would be well proportioned. I think that's well said. And so, Titus was well trusted by Paul. And we talked about this previously, but one thing to note about Titus is we see him, when we do see him throughout the rest of the scriptures, it seems that he was a very well-trusted individual by Paul. He trusted him to do some hard things, to deal with the Corinthian church, to make a collection for the, from the Christian Corinthian church that they had promised a year earlier and still hadn't give, given. And they were a problem church. And since they're a problem church, he's sending Titus into this, the midst of this problem church that's causing, that's, that's sinning in various ways like just a whole lot of different ways when you go through First and Second Corinthians, and expecting him to be successful in actually bringing that offering back to Jerusalem. So he trusted Paul with some pretty, uh, Paul trusted Titus with some pretty intense responsibilities. And so it's, I, would, I would then take that to mean that one of the reasons that Titus, the book of Titus is so short, is because he could trust Titus with a pretty succinct instructions and responsibility, and even though Titus was facing some real challenges there in Crete, he said, hey, this short, this short uh, letter, this apostolic authority will be enough to help you and give you backing in the task that you have at hand. Well, let's move on to verse 6, and it says in verse 6, the, um, I've titled this, The Model Colony, The Model Colony, and Paul gives this mandate, and then he begins to specify how that mandate is accomplished by first giving two qualifications describing the model colony. Paul bookends this section with beyond reproach. And I want you to notice this. He, he starts out, verse 6, with beyond reproach. And then even in verse 7, he also says, overseer must be beyond reproach. This is, he's emphasizing this is an extremely important qualification. Paul describes the, the model colony as the ideal Christian steward of his own household. And given, given that ideal steward of his household, of his family, 
then he goes on in verses 7 to 9 to describe the ideal, the essential qualities of the steward of God's household, the essential qualities of the steward of God's household. Now, let's look at the ideal steward of a Christian household. In verse 6, namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. And as we begin, right off the bat, it says, if any man is beyond reproach, we want to correct that. Now, man is implied. It's implied by the fact that it says one woman man. However, in the Greek, it says, if any one is beyond reproach. And what he's doing is he's beginning by eliminating different individuals. He starts out by saying, if anyone is beyond reproach, then we find out what beyond reproach means. That eliminates certain people. Then he says, if any, uh, if, if the, the husband of one wife, in other words, a one-woman man, he's saying, now it's left only to men. I'm, I'm clearing out the options even more. Now we've got to look among men. Are they one-woman men? And so on and so forth. But it's okay if they translate it this way. I just wanted to note for you that that's kind of how Paul's doing it. He's saying, he's starting out and he's saying, let me eliminate it. Let me, let me narrow it down first by saying above reproach. Then we'll get to the gender or the, the sex of the individual. And then we'll get to those other details. And I know just by mentioning that, you guys are, some of you guys are thinking, well, what about all these women pastors in our culture? And it is wrong and against Scripture to have a woman stand in eldership or leadership. And we'll look at that in more detail next week when we get down to holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, because I think that's a, that's a helpful example of, of correcting false doctrine that's prominent in the midst of the very generation that we're in. People have, have distorted God's word, and they've They've made certain roles, certain responsibilities open wider to individuals in the church where it's not meant to be. The leadership, eldership, being an overseer is limited by God to men for a purpose. It doesn't mean that men are better than women. It means that God, in his wisdom, in his design for mankind, said, I created men for this role, not women. I created women for a different role. So what does beyond reproach mean? What does beyond reproach mean? And we're gonna, what we read earlier in 1 Timothy 3 was a very similar uh, uh, synonym, and it's, it's rendered above reproach. And just say synonymous because they generally mean the same thing, and it's irreproachability, not vulnerable to accusations of failure or disqualification. What that means is accusations might be made against the individual, and sometimes, and we would even expect accusations to be made against someone, depending on how depraved the culture is, but like Teflon, Teflon that's this smooth plastic that they put on, uh, they put on cook, cookerwares that, that nothing sticks to, that's what this irreproachability is like. His, the quality of his lifestyle, the fact that he is so mature, nothing can be taken hold of or laid hold of in his life so far as accusations go. Note that this is not 
silencing accusers. This is not, this is not having followers that are so devoted to you that they take the fall. That's not what this is talking about, and if that's what has to happen in order for the guy to, be, to stay in his position, then clearly he's not qualified. Or rather, this is someone with a life with such integrity, is so evident and so powerful that it repels accusations of moral failure. In modern terms, we might, we would say, we would use the term someone with integrity, the quality or state of being complete or undivided. A person's conduct is consistent with his or her convictions. Just like I said earlier, he practices what he preaches. There's no significant disparity between what he believes and what he does. It's the opposite of someone who is duplicitous, someone who is a hypocrite. If you can see that hypocrisy in their life, then they're not living out this qualification. And let's just look at a couple examples from church history. One, someone who is not above reproach would be in the 1800s, a guy named Henry Ward Beecher. Some of you know who this is. He was a pastor in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was gifted with great oratory skills. He had a great wit. He had a charismatic personality. He was really good with words. He was, he, he was somebody who could weave words together like you wouldn't believe. You, if you were just looking for good literature or, or somebody to be able to, that sounds really good, someone who uses words well, you would be great to listen to. The problem is, not only did he only preach things like morality and wasn't sound in his doctrine, in 1874, his personal life finally hit the public, and he was enamored into a publicized trial. This was back in the days when you could actually be convicted for committing adultery. There was this publicized tr trial for committing adultery with a friend's wife, because she was accusing him. And sadly, his influence was so great that it caused the jury to be split. They had a hung jury. Had some of those people probably not been fans of his preaching, that probably certainly would have come down because there was plenty of evidence for it. And Plenty more in his life that proved that he was not a one-woman man. He was duplicitous. He hid his sin. Much evidence proved his promiscuity. And other things as well. For instance, just even if you get away from his moral life, he eventually started preaching that Darwinism was compatible with Christianity. He brought reproach to Christ and the church. That is someone who was not irreproachable, someone who is not above reproach, but someone who was in church history. We, we went over this individual just recently in my co-op church history class on Friday. Athanasius of Alexandria, this just goes all the way back to the early church, those days when there was still persecution. He, he grew up in the days of persecution, and in 296 to 373 AD was when he lived, he was a pastor in Alexandria in Egypt, and he fought for orthodoxy. He fought for Trinitarian orthodoxy. He fought against the, her the, the first major heretic, Arius. And really, the more he fought for the truth, the more people came against him. He stood for truth when in, it came, became increasingly 
unpopular to be orthodox. Increasingly, Arius became more popular. And he was accused of things like levying taxes, uh, being too young to be a pastor, using magic, which was pretty absurd, and helping traitors of the throne. And there was plenty more where that came from. And eventually, he was able to stand before a trial of all of these charges, and his life, his unblemished life, acquitted him of all of the charges. There was nothing that people could bring to actually prove that any of these things were true. That's exactly what you see in someone who is irreproachable, someone who is above reproach. Now notice that being beyond reproach does not insinuate that you have to be perfect. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, turn there with me. It's a good place to note for your own selves. You run into somebody who preaches perfectionism. Verses 12 through 14 says, and this is Paul speaking, not that I have already obtained it or, ha- or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by, G- by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says he never obtained perfection. Now, that didn't mean that he didn't strive for it, because every Christian is called to strive for perfection. But he did seek and even maintain Christian maturity that we see here in this text. Once again, note, Paul wasn't perfect, and this is not calling Christians to perfection in order to be in leadership. But I think it's important to take a moment to look and behold the one who was perfect, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never sinned once. He never spoke a lie. He never treated anyone poorly. And he always spoke the truth. And sometimes that truth really upset people upset them so much that they did try to accuse him. They tried to accuse him, and they accused him of many, many different things. However, Christ was acquitted. Let's just look at a few of those. Turn to John 8, John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having another one of his showdowns with the religious leaders. In verse 18, he starts talking to them, and he says, I am he who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me who bears witness about me. And he's calling, to, he's calling to the fact that he and the God the Father witness to you want to fix that, guys? <laughs> All right. Well, it's going to come back. Is it? Okay. As soon as I start talking about Christ, we get distracted. Here we go. 
If you, turn, if you look down to verse 46, this is where things get really intense with Jesus and the Pharisees. They are going back and forth with him. And earlier he even says that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Well, in verse 46, he says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And here's an accusation they bring against him in verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? How absurd is that? The idea that this man of God who's been healing people and bringing people back to perfect health even heals a blind man who has been born from birth in the next chapter. Or excuse me, is born blind from the, from the next, in the next chapter. This man who speaks in the authority of God's word and doesn't nullify any, anything in the Old Testament, but rather calls people to the standard that it always set, they're sitting here claiming that he has a demon and that he is essentially not a true Jew. That's what being, saying a Samaritan is. And notice they can never seem to prove anything. The people don't believe what the Jewish, people, what the, the Jewish leaders are saying. And eventually, turn to chapter 18. Even while Christ is on trial, even when he's before a secular authority, notice in chapter 18, in verse 29, Chapter 18 and verse 29, Pilate says, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So they don't even bring an accusation. They're like, well, nothing, nothing's held so far, so we'll just tell him he's, he's got to be a bad guy. We wouldn't bring, bring him to you if he wasn't. But notice in verse 38, at the end of, at the end of his his own analysis, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And even in 19 verse 6, Pilate says that again. He says, I find no guilt in him. He was acquitted of all charges, of all accusations. He was perfectly beyond reproach. And yet, he was still put to death by evil men because they hate men who represent the holy God who represent a God who doesn't allow sin, even the smallest sin, to get away. These men, they wanted to live with their sin. They wanted to live for the glory of men, for the praise of men, for their own pride. Are any of you living for the glory of men, for your own pride? Do you think that you can excuse your sin before a holy God? Christ was perfect, and he has been given all judgment. And one day, he will call you to account. You will not be able to dismiss any sin, even the smallest white lie, even the smallest lustful thought. If you haven't gone before Christ, if you haven't confessed your sin, I would urge you now to do it. Because only Christ, only Christ, who can cleanse you of your sin and bring you in a right place before a holy God. 
while this is the ideal for the Christian, this is a necessity, a necessary qualification for an elder, as I, as I noted earlier. And this is a quality of Christian maturity that we all need to be thinking about. Are you above reproach? If someone were to accuse you of something right now, what would that be? And would it stick? Would they be right if they accused you? Think that whatever sin just came into your mind, you need to write that down. Whatever sins, plural, came into your mind, write those down because you need to deal with those. Every single one of us, every single one of us, has sin in our life that we need to deal with. But we need to make sure that we're, we're seeking after this standard. And don't just write it down and don't just forget about it. Ask for help. Find accountability. Come to the leaders. Come to a, a more mature Christian than you. Find discipleship so that you can strive for being beyond reproach regardless of, ever, regardless of if you ever seek after leadership as far as men goes. Or perhaps seek leadership among women, the women's study. Verse 6 continues, and it's further qualified. And here that further qualification, if you have the LSB, is the husband of one wife. Here we go again. Let's see if there's the husband of one wife. And you could literally render this one woman man, the one woman man. It's the same exact phrase that we read in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 2, when we read through that earlier, a one woman man. There's been upwards of 10 different views on this phrase, most of which either don't pay close attention to the rest of the New Testament teaching on sexual and relational ethics, or seem to have a theological or moral axe to grind. And so here's a list. I'll just give you a list of some of those views. The first is that this means that a man who is a leader must be, or excuse me, must not be a polygamist. Another view is that he must be, must be married. In other words, he has to be married. Another view is that he must not be married but celibate. Sounds more like a Roman Catholic view. Another view is that he must be married to the church. I guess we're allegorizing or spiritualizing at that point. Another view is that he must not remarry after his first wife dies. So you marry one man and, or one woman, excuse me, for your entire life and that's it. Another view is that he must never have been in any immoral behavior. And that even means, this view means even before he was saved. The leader must not, must never have been divorced at any time or must never have been divorced after he was saved. And yet another view is that he must not be remarried after a divorce has occurred. And the last one, and this is the correct view, a leader is a man who must be exclusive to one woman not being a womanizer. Now, one of the reasons that those other views are, are not convincing and not found in the text, there's no evidence that polygamy was an issue on Crete. And so, in a sense, that's 
that is that polygamy is ruled out by the by this phrase but that's not necessarily the direct emphasis of this phrase Titus Timothy and Paul all as well were unmarried so you couldn't say that um, as, and especially as far as we know from all of the New Testament evidence, we can't say that he has to be married because then that would disqualify all of these men that are even writing, even the apostles, the, uh, the apostle Paul himself. And we know that they're all functioning as elders and were elders to one degree or another in many of the churches that they served in. Peter calls himself an elder at the end of First Peter. The ideas of, of celibacy and being married to the church those have to just be inserted in the text. That's like allegorizing, essentially. And a first wife dying and all of the divorce views, they lack scriptural support. Why wouldn't Paul be more specific if he was trying to eliminate those things? He talks about divorce elsewhere. Why wouldn't he mention that word? Why wouldn't he say, when we talk about death, if he's talking about someone who was married and then had a wife who died? He doesn't say any of that. Rather, the only thing that truly fits this and when we look at the words themselves, is being exclusive to one woman. Paul uses the Greek term anair instead of anthropos. Anair instead of anthropos. Anthropos can be used um, as a word that mostly means men or husband, but it can be used generally in such a way as to include both men and women. We say the men of earth or something like that. Right, the anthropos of Earth. You're, you can include all men and women. Just you're basically using it like it's a reference to humanity. But we don't see a nair used that way at all in the New Testament. It's only ever used of males, and so it stresses that maleness of a man. And think about what is a sinful staple or a sinful habit of males in history. And that is what? Sexual immorality. Men born in Adam have a proclivity toward promiscuity. Second, in the context of the New Testament, pornea, which is that term for sexual immorality, is used 25 times throughout the New Testament. And so what we see here is that Paul and the other apostles are stressing that sexual immorality is a sin that must be, they must be mortified by believers both internally and externally. Now, how would Paul be able to eliminate all of the different wild and really sinfully obscure ways of committing sexual immorality? This is the perfect phrase to do that. A one-woman man a one-woman man, or if we're going to extend it further as just the general picture of Christian maturity for, you, for, for ladies, that would mean that you would need to be a one-man woman, a one-man woman. Both your eyes and your heart must be qualitatively fixed on one individual dating or married, and if you're not dating or married, then you shouldn't have any individuals on your mind and heart that you're looking at. So what would that eliminate? It would eliminate the fact that if you have some sort of pornography addiction, or looking at images that you shouldn't be looking at, lustful images, as a man, that will disqualify you for leadership in the church. We can even think of close 
emotional, intimate relationships with other women would disqualify you as well. Because that close intimacy is only meant for one woman in your life, and that is the, the individual who will be your bride or is already your bride. Think of this illustration. Most of you, some of you may know who Matt Chandler is if you were here to watch um, the American Gospel film. Matt Chandler is this celebrity pastor. He's essentially started to go downhill in his doctrine. And last year, he was disqualified um, and put out, take, taken out of his role for three months. Now he's back in his role. But he was disqualified by having a just a text relationship with another woman, he's married, with another woman on the internet. As far as we know, no pictures, we don't really know the details of it, but really, if you think about it, that's enough. If you're going to have a close relationship with some other girl over text, over the internet, that can easily and will disqualify you from holding eldership. Now, that's something, maybe, maybe that's something you can come back from, but if, you, if that leads to something like sexual immorality in, in the sense of actually committing adultery with another individual, that makes it so that you should never come back into leadership. Because now that's stained you in, as someone who confesses Christ for your entire life. And if we're thinking even about, for instance, the Old Testament, because we've been through an Old Testament survey in the church, would the Old Testament patriarchs be qualified for eldership? Think about King David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba. He would not be qualified to hold a position, an office of elder in the church. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all had multiple wives. And Abraham, um, he had one wife until his wife got him in a situation where he shouldn't have, uh, with her mistress, so to speak, or her, the person who helped her out. And so he would be disqualified, and especially men like Solomon, who had multiple wives, tons and tons of wives. Solomon was definitely not a one-woman man. And some of you here today are not one-woman men. Some of you here today are not a one-man woman. You have not kept yourselves pure. And if you're hearing this, and you're not pure, you need to take action. You need to mortify that sin. And if you find that you can't do it, then maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you need to repent and come to Christ, who can give you the power and ability to find sexual purity. It's possible. It's attainable. You can be sexually pure. I would encourage you to come to leadership. Come to someone who can help you because there's a lot of ways that you can attain sexual purity. And it's only in, it's only in the church and it's only by the way of Christ. The model colony goes further than, exclusive, than exclusive, exclusivity excuse me, of one heterosexual par partner. The expectations extend to the whole of one's household. The whole of one's household. 
And there's two general views on what this means, having faithful children. And you'll see it in the LSB, and we're back in Titus. You see it in the LSB. It says, having faithful children. You may have a version that says something like, believing children. Well, the, the verb for believe or faithful can be rendered either way. And so, you have to ask, you can't just set on one of those and say that's what this means. You need to examine it further. And having faithful children would be children who are obedient children, ex- who exclusively worship Christ within the family so long as they are in the home. That would essentially be the first view. The second view would be having children who believe or believing children. In other words, they're saying they, this, those children within the household of the man, they have to profess Christ. They have to confess Christ as Lord. Now, I think there's at least two compelling reasons why believing children is not what Paul intended here. First, the adjective faithful or believing is set as last in the word order in the Greek. And it's set as last, and that is, that is important because there's an explanatory clause added. That explanatory clause is, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. Why add this explanatory clause? Why not leave it out if you wanted to be more ambiguous or at least emphasize more the idea that these children have to confess Christ? Or why not add an explanatory clause that says something like, confessing Christ as Lord? Be easy to do. Then you would clear everything up. But it appears that Paul did add this explanatory clause to help us understand that it's about the man rightly instructing and disciplining his children. Consider, for instance, Ephesians 6.4. This is a good reminder for us. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then you can just look up a few verses in Ephesians 5, 26, and, his, and this, the, the, the kind of discipline and instruction he brings to his children, the man of God, will flow from, verse 26, sanctifying his wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. In other words, if you're rightly leading your house, if you're sanctifying and washing your wife in the word, she's going to be an assistance to you in instructing and disciplining your children in godliness. Second, in 1 Timothy 3, 4, it clearly puts the emphasis on the father's faithfulness to either discipline and instruct his children or unfaithfulness in that obligation. In other words, you either have a man who is being faithful to this or he's being unfaithful, and so he's disqualified. There's no way that in the 1 Timothy 3 passage that you could ever get the interpretation of children who profess or confess the faith. And that's Paul's qualification to Timothy. Now, why with such an important family domestic qualification would Paul give a different qualification to Timothy and a different one to Titus, especially with such an important one, one that has to do with his own household? I think what you end up doing is you have to pit Paul against Paul in that situation if you're going to take the view of believing children. And you're going to have, um, you're going to, have to explain why there's such a stark difference in 
Crete, and Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, both of them were pagan, both of, both of them very immoral cultures. You could argue that Crete is more immoral, but then that would make, it, make even less sense that Paul would expect uh, an elder's children to be professing the faith because in that culture, especially with much, many newer believers, you're, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have a problem that these men have not had very much time to raise their children in the faith if they've come out of that pagan culture. And two, there is, I think there is a reason that Paul um, does not include one of, the, one of the qualifications we read earlier in 1 Timothy 3, and that is that he not be a newer convert. He leaves that qualification out for Titus, probably because you're dealing with a, a bunch of churches with a bunch of newer converts as well. That one makes sense. That one, depending on context, makes sense to leave out. But to change such an important qualification for a man in his household doesn't make sense. Now, while more could be said, and I could come up with many more things to, to, to press that point, it seems clear, at least from these two reasons, that having faithful children is the correct intent Paul has here. And to further understand this, let's look at the explanation of the clause now. The explanation given for faithful or faithful children is who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. Not accused of dissipation or rebellious. An elder's children must not be accusable or chargeable. First, of dissipation. Originally, in the Greek, it's without hope of saving. That's kind of what, what the, the first kind of meaning of this word was, and then eventually moved more into a more general meaning like abandoned, pitiable, or not preserving or wasteful. And we, even though we don't see this used a lot, and we'll go to some of the places of the New Testament here, it's, it's interesting to point out that it's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for Proverbs 7.11 of the adulterous woman. Now there it's, it's sometimes rendered rebellious or licentious, someone who's a, who's a dissolute person. Dissipation is used two other times in the New Testament. You can note these down, Ephesians 5.18, and there it connects it with drunkenness, getting drunk with wine. So having an excess amount of alcohol, and that would make you in dissipation, especially if that becomes a habit, if that's part of your character, part of your life. 1 Peter 4.4 also has this, and I, and I would say this would be one worth turning to, 1 Peter Chapter 4, in verse 4, Paul, speaking to the Christians in Asia, says in verse 3, For the time is already passed, already passed is sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. Notice where, what he's connecting dissipation with here. Not just drunkenness, but carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, sensuality. And so what we see here, if you turn back to Titus, is that this is someone, somebody who's in dissipation, is someone ruled by their sinful passions, not in control over those passions, and it includes things uh, that, are, that, are, that would be wider than things like alcohol to include actions like someone who's 
into all sorts of perverted sexual things or uh, promiscuous and or maybe somebody who's into drugs, um, someone who has reckless habits like gambling, loose living. An opposite of this, of this expression here, dissipation, would be someone who is temperate. We see this in 1 Timothy 3 as a requirement for an elder, someone who's temperate with control over their appetites or passions. Um, if you want an example of that, Many of you know you can just drive down to Portland and see some of the homeless people. Most of those people will be an example of people drown in dissipation. They are, they are enslaved to their sin, enslaved to their passions. They're enslaved to the drugs that they take. They're enslaved to sexual promiscuity. They're enslaved to all sorts of horrible sins. They're living recklessly, much like the... the prodigal son in Luke 15, 11, 32, the description of we, we get of him once he gets all that money from his dad and he goes out and he lives recklessly. He was living in dissipation, essentially. Do you have control over your own passions, over your own affections, your own appetites? How do you expect, if you have children, to not be in dissipation if they can't see that that not that well the opposite of that being modeled in your own life how do you expect your children to be temperate obedient if you don't model that in your own life and here's the thing every christian even if you don't have kids you need to be modeling that in the church because we have a lot of kids in our church they're going to see your life they're going to see how you live and you are supposed to be an example of a christian whether you have kids or not you don't want a child growing up in the church and later going out and becoming a part of drinking parties and all these abominations and later telling their dad or their mom and saying, well, I saw so-and-so do it, so it seemed okay to me. The second term used here for the model colony is elders with children that can't be accused of rebellion. They can't be accused of rebellion. So it starts with dissipation, but he also includes the term rebellion. This word is the opposite of submissive. It can mean either, one, not yet submitted to authority. That would be Hebrews 2.8, speaking of Christ, who we don't see everything submitted, everything submitted to his authority yet. Or anti-submissive, anti-submissive, undisciplined, disobedient. 1 Timothy 1.9 is a good example. You can turn to that since it's an easy one. 1 Timothy 1, just a few pages over in your Bible. Verse 9, I'll just start in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. There's our word. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Here, it means refusing to submit to authority. And it's a pretty straightforward 
I think each one of us can get understand rebellious. We've seen rebellion uh, against the, our government. We've seen rebellion um, among maybe even friends or family, uh, whether their ch- kids have grown up and rebelled or whether you're, maybe you, you have relatives. Maybe some of your own kids have this has happened to. Consider this illustration of rebellion. Turn to 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2. In 1 Samuel 2, we have, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, we have a man named Eli. And he is a priest. And he's it's still in the days of the judges at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And he is not a faithful priest in certain senses. And in a very important sense, he's really not qualified to be a priest if, if there were qualifications listed like we have here in the New Testament. Because it says in verse 25, he's speaking to his own sons and he's trying to warn them here. He's actually rebuking them. And he says, if one man sins against another, God will, not met, uh, God will, will mediate for him. Excuse me. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who can pray for him? But they, his sons, would not listen to the voice of their father, for they desired, for Yahweh, excuse me, desired to put him to death. These sons of Eli were rebellious. They didn't listen to their father. And because they were so rebellious and so evil, even Yahweh desired to put them to death. And if you look over in chapter 3, verse 13, God, speaking of Eli, says, Eli, well, let me just start at the beginning of the verse, and I have told him, Eli, that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons have been bringing a curse on themselves, but he, Eli, did not rebuke them, his sons, and his sons were named Hophi, Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas. Is because Eli didn't do his job as a father, because he didn't listen to Proverbs 13:24, which says, "He who holds back his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently." Eli did not discipline his sons diligently; therefore, they became a reproach to God's people. And they, be, they came under judgment of God. And if you keep reading in 1 Samuel, you'll find that they die in battle. And that is God's will. Turn back to, you can turn back to Titus. Do you discipline your children diligently so that your kids don't turn out like Eli's sons? Every single father and mother needs to listen carefully to this. Because the Bible gives the standard, and it doesn't matter how hard it might be. It doesn't matter how it might seem emotionally inconsistent to you to have to discipline your own kids with the rod. It doesn't matter how much they might get upset at the discipline. If you're doing it in a godly way, if you're doing it right, they're going to get upset. But God will bless that. And God will bless that by bringing up children in your household who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. Now, we've looked at two of the three essentials of the church's organization that challenge you to maturity in the faith by the standard of those who model it. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that all will appear before the judgment seat 
of Christ. So when you hear these standards, have you examined your life? What does your life look like in regard to even just these few standards we've started to look over today? Do you fall short of being beyond reproach? Or having a disciplined household? For believers, you need, as we said earlier, to confess, repent of your sins before Christ. Be cleansed. Go back to that living water and be cleansed. And then find accountability within the church and get help mortifying those sins. For those outside of Christ, you need to forsake your sin. You need to leave it behind. You need to say, I no longer want to love this sin anymore. I want you, Christ. You need to call out to Christ. You need Christ to come and put a new heart in you, to regenerate you. Only Christ can transform a broken, depraved sinner. Only Christ can give you a new heart that will give you a new life and allow you to slowly but surely renew and transform your own actions. And here we see the model of a Christian, a mature, a godly Christian, and how we, every single one of us, need to strive for that kind of godliness. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in Titus this morning. And we thank you for even the beginning of this journey through the lists of qualifications, Lord. And I pray that you would help in each and every individual here to be thinking deeply about what their life looks like in response to these. And that you would help your people to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are going to continue worshiping.